Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin podcast. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Uh, the panel is actually taking uh, spring break, so there'll be no panel discussion today, but we have something even better. We have uh, Judge Joanne Kloppenberg, candidate for the state Supreme Court with us, uh, to have a discussion of, uh, of the race and uh, why she's running Supreme Court and what's going on in general. So, Judge Kloppenberg, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. So, as you know, we, as your audience knows, this is a very plugged-in audience. They know about your race in, in 2011. So it's sort of like coming really close in the NCAA tournament and not quite making it. But now you're in the Final Four again. And so, just like the, the, the uh, NCAA tournament is time. So, uh, why don't we uh, just be interesting to hear uh, why you wanted to run, uh, both in 2011 and now, um, especially since, obviously, you chose to run. You weren't selected by anyone else, which, uh, which you know, is different than some other candidates, and obviously have a passion to uh, go to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court and, and do something there. So I just want to tell our listeners a little bit about why you're running and uh, why, what you think, why you'd really like to be on the State Supreme Court and what contribution you'd think you'd make on it. Sure. My reasons for running now are the same as they were in 2011, having been an assistant attorney general for 23 years of the Department of Justice representing the people of Wisconsin and courts around the state, and now, of course, as a judge on the Court of Appeals for almost four years, I it, it is so important that our court be the independent check and balance on the other branches of government that it was designed to be, and that it be a place where people get a fair shake, where the outcome of any case is not a foregone conclusion where the justices approach every case with an open mind and where people are confident that justice is being done without fear or favor. I am running because I'm unwilling to surrender the court to the partisan politics and the special interests that threaten to undermine its independence and integrity. And that's what distinguishes me from my opponent, independence, integrity, and experience. Let's talk a little bit about that. One of the challenges people have with Supreme Court elections is is that they're not lawyers. The cases are complicated. So it's not like uh, whether a candidate voted for or against a piece of legislation, which is a little easier to understand. Uh, and I, I include myself in that. It's uh, hard to judge someone's judicial record, for example, or their, or their philosophy. Um, but there really is a sense, I have it and a lot of people have it, a lot of average voters have it who, who are not necessarily serial news watchers, uh, that the decisions are predetermined in some way, that the current majority will figure out how to support a certain position regardless of what the law says. And in fact, if there was a different governor, they might find a di- reach a different conclusion. And I and you know you you in a very high-minded may re- referred to that a little. So you talk a little bit about uh, w- how this court is becoming come very partisan. So I get a sense maybe people look back with rosy-colored glasses sometimes that maybe 30 years ago that just because you were uh, you know you were a Republican or Democratic, conservative, liberal or moderate, it didn't necessarily determine your decisions. There was still more judicial independence, and that that's gone away. And that's one of the many, one of the several really critical things that are different from 2011 to now, and that is there are red flags in decisions that people see had direct and real impacts on their lives and their communities in the state. For example, you had the voter ID case where the court, concluding that the regulations as they were written appeared to be unconstitutional, actually put language in to quote unquote fix them and. Sp- and legislated from the bench in a way, rather than saying the rules 
did not meet constitutional muster as they were written and sending them back to the legislature and the executive branches to fix them. Or the um, several Act 10 cases concerning the rights of workers to organize where the court appeared to be answering the question it wanted to answer rather than the question that was asked by the parties in order to reach the result it reached. And the more recent John Doe investigation cases where some of the concurring justices relied for their decision on information that they pulled from outside of the record, from publications issued by the parties, uh, in violation of the basic rule of appellate judging, which is you're limited to the facts that were developed before the circuit court. And then you had that very long and complex decision on the motion for reconsideration, where they fired the prosecutor. And the complexity of that decision called into question the soundness of the original decision to begin with. So there are all those red flags. People get that what the court does is important. They have concerns that some of those decisions seemed like foregone conclusions. Other things that are different from 2011 are this sense that that government isn't working for people. I was up in Phillips in Price County on Halloween and a Koch Brothers-owned factory closed that Saturday. 65 jobs gone, which was a big blow for a small community. Two months later, I was in Rhinelander, and Caterpillar announced it was closing that plant. Over 200 jobs gone. And people were saying to us up there, you know, we like to hunt, we like to fish, we like to build things, but Governor Walker's agenda is the government is not working for us anymore. And they said they at least wanted the court to work for them. They don't want the agendas that come with partisan politics to bleed over from the political, from the legislative and executive branches into the court. They see that the court needs to be free of partisan politics. And the results in the primary showed that people want a court that's independent and free of partisan politics, free of special interests, and not dominated by Scott Walker. And if you think about the statutes, right, they're a broad mosaic. They're built up over years. It's almost like archaeological how they're built up. And they're, and they're built up by con Democratic and Republican governors, Democratic and Republican legislators from all over the state. So they don't just say one thing. I mean, when you see judges who always find a right-wing interpretation of the law, that's highly questionable. Uh, the law, as, as it's going to be applied to a given case, is not going to have one consistent slant. No, and when you look at the 750-plus decisions that I've issued as a court of, appeal judge, court of appeals judge, you will see that in every case I follow the law and apply it to the facts in a fair and thoughtful and principled and disciplined manner. And you couldn't tell from looking at any one of those cases that it was written by a conservative judge or a, li a liberal judge. And that's the hallmark of a good judge or justice, that it's a decision that is well-reasoned, that people can understand, and that even the losers can feel like they had a fair shake. And uh, there may be some of this you don't want to comment on what I'm about to say because I know you're running, you're, you take seriously the idea that you're running for Supreme Court and there, there are areas you talk about, but you don't necessarily get into all of the nuts and bolts. But, you know, there has been a U.S. Chamber of Commerce strategy uh, for about 15 to 20 years of trying to take over state courts. And Wisconsin's been part of that. And Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce has been the major funder of these outside expenditures that will essentially say anything about a, about a candidate they're trying to oppose. And it seems like part of it is not just to get conservative justices, but get conservative justices that will just rule 
in a conservative way, period, to get ones that are not, don't actually look at the law. In other words, to put people in there who literally, there doesn't seem to be a chance they'd be independent. I won't name names, but it seems like the idea here is not just to get conservative justices, but to get to justices that will always come to a predetermined conclusion. Well, and what's very concerning about this race is the brazenness with which my opponent has accepted and embraced a p very partisan approach in her campaign to what's supposed to be a nonpartisan race for a nonpartisan judiciary. Not only was she appointed three times to three judgeships in three years by Governor Walker, but she had been a member of the Republican National Lawyers Association and the very ideologically conservative Federalist Society, but she also has accepted help from the Republican Party in this campaign, which is helping to pay for her campaign operations and staffing. Just last week, uh, the lieutenant governor, a Republican from our executive branch, Rebecca Clayfish, sent out a fundraiser for Rebecca, for Rebecca Bradley that was on stationery that came from the Republican Party. There uh, has been a tracker following me to most of my events who we found out is the office manager for the Republican Party here in, in Wisconsin. The Republican Party is directly and visibly and openly involved in what should be a nonpartisan race, and that sends warning signals to everybody around the state who take seriously that the court needs to be free from partisanship entirely. And she doesn't have much experience, unlike, very unlike you, and uh, she seems to have been selected almost, like they have a process for deciding who they're going to put on, as opposed to you who selected yourself twice to run for state Supreme Court. Right, well, and I owe my judicial career to the people of Wisconsin. She owes hers to Governor Walker, having been plucked out of private practice and fast-tracked up through all of the courts in just three years, that certainly that fast-track series of appointments indicates that it was politics and not qualifications that got her onto the court. And, you know, it does seem that if, you're, if you owe your election to a particular party, then how do we expect you, even given her benefit of the doubt, which I'm not sure we should do, but even if we did, uh, expect her to, to rule independently on major laws and initiatives of a governor and a party that, that, would, that, if she won, would be putting her on the state Supreme Court? Well, that's the concern I'm hearing people express from all over the state, and it's a concern expressed by judges around the state and the judges who know her best, Milwaukee County. You noted before that she has a very slim judicial resume, having been two and a half years in children's court where all the records are confidential, only five months on the Court of Appeals where she issued a handful of inconsequential decisions, and then uh, just a few months on the Supreme Court where her, her first decision was to side with Justices Gableman, Ziegler, Prosser, and Rogensack to quash efforts to review the judicial code of conduct and the recusal rules and to quash efforts to make the operations of the court more transparent. And that's why, in order to, to tell who, will who will, is most likely to deliver on our promise to be independent and partial, voters need to look, on us, look at how we got where we are today and, and look at our records and... That's why, you know, mine is, is very public, 23 years representing the interests of the people of Wisconsin under four attorneys general from both parties, and then almost four years issuing over 750 written decisions as a court of appeals judge. She, all, what we have to go on are the parts of her record that are relevant to 
the kinds of choices she makes in in legal situations. And by that, I mean you talk about her hateful writings from um, the early 1990s when she deliberately articulated for publication very extreme and hateful views towards gays and women and people with addiction issues, continued to do so in 2006 when she was a practicing corporate attorney and again deliberately articulated for publication comments essentially saying that contraception equals murder and then aligning herself with people who hold similarly extreme views even now using Milwaukee County David uh, Sheriff David Clark who has made his more than his share of hateful rants about gays and people of color and women, using him as a fundraiser in her campaign, a, a critical part of her campaign, and aligning herself with Justice Scalia, who, outside of his ju judicial writings, also made very extreme comments about gays and people of color. It, those kinds of choices in show people what kind of candidate she is. And, and another choice that she made that is also relevant is uh, her choice to represent a man with whom she was romantically involved in a family law case, specifically a dispute over custody of a minor child whom she knew and, and with whom she had spent some time. And she said, you know, it, it wasn't unethical and friends represent friends all the time, but in fact, although experts agree it wasn't unethical. They say that it was unwise, and PolitiFact checked her statement, and family law practitioners from around the state confirmed that in the area of family law, which is very emotionally laden, you should not be representing someone with whom you ha are emotionally involved, nor should you represent yourself, as she did here, in an area in which you have very little expertise, family law, nor should she have represented this man when she could have been called as a witness in the child custody matter had it not been resolved out of court. So she exercised judgment very poorly in a legal situation, and that's another bit of information that's relevant that voters should consider when they're deciding who to vote for in this race. Let's talk a little bit about the recusal issue, which has become a, a major issue. I mean, we have the situation where huge amounts of outside money comes in for state Supreme Court races. That was never the way the system was intended. It never occurred until the last decade or so. And the parties that are spending this money then are parties before the state Supreme Court. And the current majority takes the position that this there is no conflict here whatsoever and that they can be expected to be independent and render a fair judgment when people who made it possible for them to have their jobs are before them. And this is stunning to, to a lot of people who believe in good government and democracy. And it harkens back to the bizarre uh, U.S. Supreme Court position in, in Citizens United that somehow spending large amounts of money on someone's behalf is not corruption, is not bribery. Uh, well, and I've been consistent since 2011 in calling for review and revision of our recusal rules, which are among the weakest in the country. They rely on a subjective standard. A, a justice can say, 
I don't have a conflict of interest. I know I can be impartial, and no one can second-guess that justice or judge. We should be replacing that with an objective standard that can be tested by, by factors like those that have been articulated by the U.S. Supreme Court in the West Virginia Caperton case, where um, it's whether there's an appearance of conflict of interest or partiality to a reasonable person, and you look at things like how f how the d the time the distance in time between when the case is before the court and when these parties spent that money uh, you look at the proportionality how much money did they spend relative to other players mm -hmm. and the candidates there are there's a series of objective facts you can look at and then determine from that would peop would the a reasonable person see an appearance of a conflict in light of those facts so in that kind of a standard someone giving a hundred dollar contribution a couple years ago probably wouldn't bias the justice, but someone spending half a million dollars on TV ads for the justice to be elected uh, to a reasonable person would seem uh, to be a conflict. Right, and even Chief Justice Roberts in the recent Florida case from last fall uh, concerning um, financial contributions in judicial races noted that Judicial races are different from the regular political legislative races that they were they were dealing with in Citizens United and other cases, and that there is a greater potential for the appearance of corruption uh, when you're talking about contributions in the context of a judicial race. And it's going to get worse before it gets better until we reform our campaign finance laws. If we're going to have huge amounts of private unregulated money, often dark money, uh, influencing races and determining what the public knows about candidates, then the, the, the chances of corruption, uh, of both perceived and real, are, are great. Right. But even in Citizens United, the United States Supreme Court left open very widely the door for states to at least require more transparency in the form of disclosure requirements, and there are efforts to require disclosure so you don't have dark money in other states around the country. But in and in this race, though, knowing that those that those unregulated special interests were going to come in, I have been working to connect with people from the time I began my campaign. Uh, earlier this summer, last summer, to foreshadow that that money would be coming in, but to get the facts out clearly ahead of time so that voters can speak more loudly and clearly than money in this election. One interesting thing, and you may not be able to comment this because this might come before your court, but it really appears that that legal defense of Governor Walker from the John Doe investigation was essentially to reinterpret the law. In other words, to say that the law was unconstitutional in some way or was going to be eventually unconstitutional against coordination and therefore to legalize something that most people felt was illegal at the time. I can tell you our organization uh, does independent electoral work and we would have assumed we would have been in a tremendous amount of trouble if we did anything like Governor Walker and the people who were supporting him in the recall had done. And I mean, what is your perspective on, uh, you know, basically nullifying a law after the fact, which is it seems to be that the, the, it seems to be the argument really, because the understanding of the law at the time he he violated. Well, I can't comment yeah. on the legal issues that you raise in your question because it is very likely mm -hmm. that they will come back in some form before okay. the court. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, are there other areas that we haven't talked about, major issues that concern people, maybe the environment, uh, 
at you know, women's health or others that, that you're concerned about the conduct of the current majority? Well, what I'm hearing from people around the state, not only do they want all three branches of government to work for them, but they want their local governments to be allowed to work for them. I'm hearing a lot of discussions revolving around issues of local authority and local control. And, but throughout, it's keeping partisan politics and special interests off the court. And, and there, is, there is a really strong ground game going on around the state around this race, because not only, as I noted before, do they get what the court does is important, they've also gotten to know the personalities on the court a little bit over the last five years, and they get that who we elect as justice is really important. Also, when I was running in 2011, I ran against an entrenched incumbent, Justice Prosser, who'd been there a long time. This time, we all know that uh, Rebecca Bradley is the interim incumbent. And as one of my supporters in River Falls said, the I for in, is not for incumbent by her name, but it is for interloper. And I think that that's how people perceive her. And, and there's also this, this sense that, um, that people, that they can, they're working hard to really make a difference in this race. That, that that there's just, that partisan politics do really threaten to bleed over into our Wisconsin Supreme Court and that the court really needs to stay free of that and that I, unlike my opponent, have a, a completely nonpartisan record standing up for all of the people of Wisconsin my entire career that I do have superior judicial and legal qualifications and I have a proven track record that gives people confidence that I will bring independence and integrity to the court. To the, court. the choice is very clear in this race. And it's one of the dark money groups that uh, no one's heard of until now, so we, no one knows who paid for it, right? We can mm -hmm. guess. Uh, basically, we were, we've been joking about this for more than months, about they'll just invent um, you know, connecting you to the most heinous criminal, and then uh, and then and then run hundreds of thousands of dollars of TV ads about it. Uh, the position seems to be, which is degrading to the whole court, that if you ever rule on any motion that uh, is in favor of 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 anyone who is ever convicted of a heinous crime, then you support that crime and you support that criminal, which wouldn't undermine the entire criminal justice system if that was the standard. We would just, there'd be no due process. We'd just throw anyone in jail who uh, was accused of any heinous crime because the judge would be held accountable for ever ruling in their favor on any motion, ever. Right. Well, these, these are very deceitful ads that target three decisions out of the over 750 that I've issued during my time on the Court of Appeals. The ads are so inaccurate and misleading that even Fox News called out one of them, and they uh, and and other media outlets have done a really good job of breaking down the inaccuracies in each one of those ads. Each of those, there are three cases. They were decided by a unanimous panel of three Court of Appeals judges. I was one of the three judges on the unanimous panel that issued those three decisions. And in, every, in each of those decisions, we followed well-settled law. And just because the Wisconsin Alliance for Reform doesn't appear to have liked the outcome, 
is distorts the whole judicial system, as you said, and misstates the law and shamelessly exploits the victims of the crimes in those cases. And those ads are, um, they are deceitful and they distract from the real issues of this case, which, of this race, which is to keep you know, who will stand up to partisan politics and special interests and who really will be independent and follow the law in these cases rather than a predetermined outcome that, that some special interests feel you know, should be reached in a case. And if they came from an independent group, so if they'd come from uh, Bradley herself, they'd probably be a violation of the code judicial conduct, though... There is no guarantee in that citizen action. We're the ones who filed the complaint against Justice Gableman for his completely heinous ad uh, against Justice Butler, the first African-American member of the uh, state Supreme Court that were an outright lie that used a Willie Horton-like tactic, put a picture of Justice Butler next to an African-American offender, claimed that it, one of his rulings had sprung this person loose and they committed another crime when it had not at all. And it was a complete fabrication. He was actually con uh, found guilty by the by the uh, uh, at the administrative level, and then uh, by the commission, and then it, it was a three-three tie on the state supreme court with him, with Galen recusing himself, which means it's in legal limbo. In fact, the case still technically exists; it's just in legal limbo. Uh, well, that's one of the many reasons that our judicial code of conduct needs review and revision, and this this whole specter of deceit surrounding these three cases. Is, is totally belied by the fact that I am endorsed by the largest law enforcement association in the state, the Wisconsin Professional Police Association. And it's telling that they were involved, they were a party in two different cases that came before me on the Court of Appeals. And in one I ruled, I was part of a panel that ruled in favor of them, and in one I was part of a panel that ruled against them. And that that's the whole story right there. It shows my independence and their appreciation of my independence and my understanding of criminal justice issues. There's no question that, uh, especially in Milwaukee and throughout the state, people want to live in communities that they f in which they feel safe and which are, are safe. And the Wisconsin Professional Police Association and most more judges than my opponent around the state and more judges in Milwaukee than my opponent um, have endorsed me because of my understanding and appreciation of legal issues, including criminal justice issues and how they relate to the job of law enforcement in Milwaukee and around the state. And they know that I bring that appreciation and understanding with me, but will dis also decide cases that are fair and independent and that are clear because more than anything, law enforcement needs to, to know what the law is so that they're not thinking when they're making their split-second decisions to stop someone, to keep the community safe. They're not thinking about, whoa, can I do this, can I do this? They need to have clear, cl clearly stated legal decisions from the courts so that they can go about their jobs uh, in the most expeditious way possible, and they know that they get those kinds of decisions from me. So let me ask you about one other uh, big uh, legal question we haven't talked about yet, and that is just uh, mass incarceration. Mm. 
and the fact that Wisconsin shockingly has the highest rate of African American incarceration uh, in the whole country. And you know, a lot of our listeners have read Michelle Alexander's *The New Jim Crow*, uh, and it just and quite frankly, there really has been a, a turn against what was done in the crime bill uh, in the 1990s, which a lot of people voted for, a lot of progressives voted for it. In fact, Paul Wellstone and um, Bernie Sanders voted for it. Uh, but there has been real turnaround on that. And I'm just wondering, so, I mean, it really does confer second-class citizenship to a whole bunch of nonviolent offenders. We have zip codes uh, in Milwaukee where half of the African-American men have served time in prison. And, mo- and many of them for nonviolent offenses. So is there is there much a Supreme Court can do? I mean, oh, you, you have a, a bully pulpit now where you're running for office, but uh, to try to uh, really right-size the criminal justice system and stop the, the incredible racial inequity involved. Well, the Supreme Court is already trying to do that, working with circuit court judges around the state and other stakeholders, st- stakeholders, local governments, nonprofits, the state bar, and the legislature to identify areas in which the courts can do something, like provide uh, alternative courts you know, and programs and treatments f- to that hold offenders accountable, but get them back to their communities as safely and quickly as possible with, with the appropriate programming and treatment and support, but also identifying areas in which there might be imbalances in legal representation uh, when um, making sure that at every step in the criminal justice process, low-income folks, people of color, have counsel in the same ways that, that people who can afford counsel from the start have lawyers to advocate for them from the start of, the ju- of, the, of their entry into the criminal justice system, and that all of the players have enough resources, that the prosecutors have enough resources, the defense bar has enough resources, and the court has enough resources so that people can be confident that justice is being done at all those steps. And, and working especially with the circuit court judges who have identified areas in which the legislature could make changes that only the legislature can make because they they implicate policy determinations about, say, mandatory sentencing, maybe giving judges, circuit court judges, more discretion, um, and 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 you know reviewing the whole criminalization right system. All of those things are for the legislature to make, but certainly the Supreme Court can be part of that. Discussion and in fact, I am a member of the court's policy and planning advisory committee, which has established every two years they establish critical issues, and two of the critical issues for the next two years are substance abuse and juvenile, uh, the juvenile justice system, and in in as part of both of those, the court will be looking at issues related to high incarceration rates and racial disparities and seeing what what they can do about it. The court can provide training, and it has done that, provided um, training about um, Im- implicit racism, about trauma-informed decision-making. They can also help local circuit courts get grants to explore different alternatives. There's you know a lot that the Supreme Court can do and has been starting to do to address these issues. So what you're saying is there are certain things the courts can do and the Supreme Court can do, but you can also work in partnership with the legislature to go beyond what you can do on your own. And once you accept that substance use is a medical condition Mm -hmm. um, and not some moral failing, 
then quite frankly, it becomes like throwing people in jail for diabetes or cancer, to be honest. And I know the courts have to follow the law, but you can within you know, use your current discretion and do things like drug courts, for example. But then you still need the services to back them up right. to give people treatment. Right. And right. you can't do all of that. You can do some of that with your current discretion. And up north and in the west, they call those kinds of courts wellness courts, mm-hmm. which is um, more ref- reflective of what you were just right. saying, yeah. right? So is there anything else we, ha- we that you'd like to cover that, that we haven't since you've been on the campaign trail and talking about the issues? Is there something of great concern to voters that we, that we haven't covered? I think we have covered the field of, of what voters have been talking about and what is of concern to people around the state. And I really appreciate you all paying attention to what is a very, very important race for the for the state of Wisconsin as a whole, certainly for the future of our court. Well, thank you for joining us and for giving all the listeners across the state such a wide-ranging view of, of why you're running and what the stakes are. I think that's really helpful to everyone. Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, and I hope you have uh, you have all your energy uh, uh, stored up now for the last final push the last week. <laughs> I, I do, and I get a lot of energy from the people working really hard around the state on this race. Well, great. And what is your website if people want more information? It is kloppenbergforjustice.com, and we're also on Facebook, and we'd love to hear from all of, all of you. Well, thank you very much, and uh, g- good luck in the next week. It's going to be uh, g- quite the close, and, uh, and it's an extremely important race. So I know our listeners going to get out there, but I'd also say that talk to your, you have huge influence with your friends and family members. And, it, it, and really, it, this is a very, very important race. People may be coming out anyway to vote for president, but it'd be pretty, it'd be pretty good for, unfortunate if they just voted at the presidential level and then rolled off, so to speak, didn't, didn't vote the rest of the ballot, especially for state Supreme Court. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for the opportunity.